0: They come in and they are supposed to spy on the people of Jericho and figure out how do we win this city over? How do we get this next step in our journey? But the spies don't just land in the middle of the city and then try to figure out what to do. They have some kind of a hint. They have some kind of a clue about where they're supposed to go. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. Then the king of Jericho was told, some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Two things have happened just in this brief passage at the beginning of of Joshua chapter two. The spies have showed up and yet somehow they know where to go. How do they know to go to Rahab's house? What, like, they didn't just show up and say, like, well, geez, where's the local prostitute? That, they'll know what's going on. Some scholars believe that Rahab's house, where she conducted her business, wasn't so much a home as it was more like a tavern. If you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, I want you to picture the inn of the Prancing Pony. Remember this in the first book of the Lord of the Rings, where the team kind of meets together for the very first time. In ancient times, a tavern or a place for people to gather, that's where you would have heard what was going on. What was the lay of the land? How do we know these different things about this city? So the spies go to Rahab's tavern, if you will, and they start to figure out what's going on. Interestingly enough, the king also knows that Rahab's tavern is the place where things go down. Because what does this passage tell us? The king became aware quickly that there were spies in their midst. So we've learned something about Rahab just in this short amount of time. She's running a business. She has a home. People seek her out. There's some kind of community connection going on there. She's known by the king. There's some notoriety there. And she recognizes that the spies are coming in and they're going to need a lot of help to do what they came to do. To just briefly summarize the rest of the story, the Israelite spies come in, they talk with Rahab, then the word gets to the king and he sends people there to kill the spies. Rahab hides the spies. She sends them out, but not before making a really, really sharp deal with them. They return, conquer the city, and Rahab and her family are spared. I'm skipping over a lot of different things, but oftentimes when we don't remember all the contours of a story, it's good to kind of know, like, no, this ends up well for Rahab. Yes, God's people end up conquering the city of Jericho. Remember, they march around it for five days and they blow their trumpets. That all happens. So let's go back to Rahab. Why would we say that she is a successful person? That's that's part of our outline. What is her success? Well, she's renowned. The king knows who she is. Even spies, strangers who show up, they know who she is. She's running a business. She has a home. This would have been remarkable things for a woman in the ancient Near East, a patriarchal society. People knew her name. And if I just describe someone to you like that in our context, you would say, yeah, they've arrived, they've landed, they are successful. Never mind the fact that she's participating in a business and in a trade that basically makes a commodity out of her body and the bodies of others. Never mind the fact that we kind of have to look the other way about the moral complications of that. Let us just say that this person is successful. But that's where we're going to miss it. That's where we miss the cry of the heart that is implicit in the text. Rahab is not a person of faith. The Canaanites were not people who worshipped Yahweh. They had their own gods. They had their own kind of pagan system. Jericho was a pagan city ruled over by this king. They were not devoted to the God that the spies were devoted to. They were living life without the knowledge of the goodness and grace of the God of Israel. Before we get further into Rahab's story, don't we all know people like this? Doesn't every one of us in the room know someone who is successful? By the standards of the East Side, they own a home. They're running their business or they're building a business or they're doing something successful in the marketplace. They've got the most fabulous kitchen you've ever seen with iron cookware everywhere. They have arrived, they made it. But just like Rahab, under the surface, there is more going on there's a longing, there's a darkness, there's a despair. The story is told of a a renowned social media influencer, someone who has just figured out a way to kind of make their way online. They have made a ton of money. They're posting all the time to their thousands, if not millions, of followers. They travel the globe. They live off their laptop. They go to these exotic locations, and they live in an Airbnb for a while, and then they go somewhere else, and this is all documented. They're living the life. They've arrived, right? And then one day, this influencer shows up in Japan, And they go to a park, just a city park. Picture the park near your house. And they sit down, and they're about to do some cool stuff with all their social media things. And they see a family, a husband and a wife and a couple kids, just playing on the other side of the park. And they break down in tears. This influencer, this powerful person, this person who is christened with success, they're weeping in this park in Japan. Because they see something that they do not have, and their heart yearns for it. The book of Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity in the hearts of people. St. Augustine said, Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Make no mistake, friends, Rahab is successful, but her heart is not at rest. And you and I know people just like her. So, what happens? Rahab creates a deal with the spies. But before she does this, I want to read this passage real quick. Some scholars call this Rahab's confession, where she names this fledgling faith. I picture her saying these words to the spies and kind of surprising herself. Have you ever had this happen where you're, you're speaking or you're talking to someone, and what you're saying is so truthful and so wonderful, and you're going like, oh, I, this never occurred to me until I articulated it. This is what she says. For we, the people of Jericho, have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who you utterly destroyed, divine power. Earthly power, it's all working in your favor, Israel. As soon as we heard about your God, our hearts melted. <laughs> not our mental defenses collapsed. Not our religious arguments against your faith fell apart. Our hearts melted. And there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. She's naming a nascent faith, a faith that is just barely tottering along. Why would she do that? In part, it's the longing of the heart that we talked about, right? It's this emptiness, this shadow that she feels that she can't get off. But I think Rahab is actually really brilliant in how she confesses her faith because she sees something bigger is going on. She sees that there's this movement through the people of Israel, through this God that they worship, one God, not many gods, one God, And he is powerful, and he is compassionate, and he has carried this crazy group of people with all the nuts and bolts that they have in them to the doorstep of her city. And she recognizes power when she sees it. Do you get what I'm saying? She recognizes the power of God. And a much bigger thing is happening. This is the message of Advent. Century after century after century, the churches proclaim this, that when we come into the Christmas season, we recognize that a bigger thing is happening. It's much bigger than any of us. It is the birth of the Savior. It is God in his brilliance and his creativity bringing into life the very means of salvation, the person who brings our salvation, not as a conquering king, but as a helpless baby. This is something that Rahab recognizes in the moment. She sees that there is a much bigger power at work. And she's humbled by it. Maybe this has happened to you when you've been at work and your boss comes in your office and you go, okay, that's interesting. I wonder what this is about. And then your boss's boss comes in your office and you go, oh boy. And then your boss's boss's boss comes in your office and you go, I'm going to start packing my things. Like, what is going on here? We recognize power, and it does something to us. I want to ask you, church, when is the last time that you felt humbled in the presence of something powerful? Because that's what's happening to Rahab. She's going, okay, I got my business, I got my home, I got my family, I'm in this city, I'm longing for something more. But she has the humility to stop and say, oh, but I really want what these men have. I want the God that they worship to rescue me. What moves Rahab is this call to humility. That her power and her success can't hold a candle to the God of the universe. Boy, we struggle with that on the east side, don't we? Our power, our success, our titles, how many people we supervise how the stock price is for the company we work for. Actually, don't pay attention to that right now. That's not good to look at. I'll tell you who's been humbled lately. My neighbors who've gotten laid off from big tech companies. Children who've been isolated throughout COVID. Shut-ins and the elderly who haven't seen people. Who long for fellowship and community. Have you been humbled, church? Church? Maybe you did and you didn't recognize it. Maybe God's asking you to humble yourself before him, to be his servant, to not just look to your own needs, as Jesus said, but to look to the needs of others. Jesus called his people to minister not to those who are well, but to the sick to the Rahabs of our world. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter five, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I have not come for the good and the cleaned up and the ones who look proper. I have come for the Rahabs who are desperate for me. I remember reading this passage as a boy, kind of young in my faith, and I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm really glad I'm not sick. And I don't think I'm alone in reading this passage this way, presuming that I'm okay, presuming that I have nothing that the God of the universe hasn't already given to me. Oh, church, without the God of the universe, I am D O A, dead on arrival. And Rahab knew this. Do you know this? Without his power, without his grace, without his rescue, we are the people of Jericho looking at the Israelite army going, uh oh, we're in trouble. Rahab moves toward Yahweh. It takes a while, and then she is welcomed in to his family. That's the happy ending of the story. The scarlet thread is, is, or scarlet cord is hung out the window. That's the sign to the Israelite army to leave Rahab's family alone, leave her house alone. So when they come in and conquer the city, Rahab's family is spared. She literally protects her entire family. And then we see throughout uh, the rest of her story, she's brought in, grafted into the family of Israel. They're not just spared and then they're kind of left alone. They are brought in to this wonderful new thing that God is doing. Every one of us has people in our lives like Rahab. And every one of us has a part of Rahab in our lives. But I want us to think specifically this morning about our friends and our colleagues and our neighbors whose success blinds us to how hurt they are and how sick to the heart they are and how tired they are of being lonely and being shut out. I want us to picture the people that we know who intimidate us because they just seem like they have it all together? And would we be willing to recognize that there is a deep ache and a longing in the hearts of every person that we encounter who lives apart from God to belong, to be in a place of love and grace and welcome? Here's the wonderful thing. The gospel is not just, hey, Rahab came to faith and it was all good. The wonderful thing is, Rahab, much like the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. You are part of my family now. This way of life is no longer for you. Our world needs that calling, and yet people won't hear that because they're so happy with their success. So what can we do? What are some practical steps that we can take? First of all, just recognize that Advent is a season of invitation. It's a season of invitation, think about it. How many Evites are in your inbox right now to come to this holiday party or this thing, or this is going on, or your neighbors are doing this? It's kind of fun, because we haven't really had that for two years, right? Like, it feels like there's a bit of a return to form there. And maybe you're sitting there going like, oh yeah, sounds nice for you that you're getting all these invitations. If we were to pay attention, there are plenty of things around each of us that we could step into in the time of Advent. But the question I want to ask you isn't, where are you going? It's who are you bringing with you? Who would you bring with you to have a meal in your home? Who would you bring with you to come and be a part of worship? Christmas Eve is coming. It happens every year on December 24th, Saturday this year. It's at 5 p.m. We share the service with our friends at IPC. It's one of my favorite things that we do every year. I love our worship service with IPC. It's so much fun. Would you consider inviting one of those Rahabs in your life just to join us, just to be here? What if Rahab had ignored that tug on her heart toward the goodness of God? What if she just said, No, nah, I'm good, I'm successful, I've got it all covered. What if she'd never been rescued? God would have found a way to bring the Savior into the world, no doubt, but her story would not be a part of Jesus' story. And I think the church and and the faith that we proclaim in Jesus Christ, it would have not been as robust without stories like Rahab's. Maybe you know someone right now whose story is just kind of wilting. They're just in pain. They're struggling. They look fine on the outside, but they need to belong. And they won't know unless you tell them that they can belong here. That they belong in the presence of Christ. They belong at the table with Jesus. Would you invite someone in? Would you consider bringing someone here for worship or for the cookie exchange. Maybe you know someone who's an amazing baker, and you go, hey, my church is doing this thing. I would love for you to make one of your most amazing things of cookies. Maybe you know someone who's a terrible baker, and they should bring their cookies, and we can put them on the kids' table so other people don't have to eat them. Invite people to come and be a part of this. God is up to stuff here, at church, but other people won't know about it unless you tell them. As we close and prepare our hearts to come to the table, I want to show you a photo that has always kind of stuck with me. This was uh, on the cover of Christianity Today about five years ago. And it's a scene of refugees fleeing persecution. The people on the left are stepping off of a boat onto the people on the right. This is taken just off the coast of Greece. And so these were refugees from the Civil War in Syria seeking a place of safety and shelter. Look at the outstretched arms. Look at the boy being handed across the chasm. Look at the men holding tight to that rope. Look at that baby in that man's arms. I believe this is the calling of the church. To rescue not to be the Redeemer, we have the Redeemer, Jesus, but to bring people from the turmoil that they are in into a place of hope, a place of safety, a place of refuge. As we turn our attention now to communion, I want to invite you to just ponder this image. We'll be quiet for a moment as George and the band come up, and they're going to play quietly. But I want you to just ponder this, and ponder the Rahabs that may be in your life, the successful people who are adrift without Jesus, who are lost, who have all the things but have nothing. Consider who those people might be. Ask God to give you the courage to speak to them this week, to invite them, to care for them, to minister to them. We'll consider this image together as we pray and as we transition to the communion table. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you that we did not deserve it or earn it. Thank you that for the people of God, salvation is a gift. The rescue of Jesus is a gift. We're mindful, God, that this picture of refugees, it wasn't a one and done thing, but it it plays out all over the world, even to this day. People fleeing the war in Ukraine. People running away from their homes and from countries that they've loved, that it's all they've known, but there is no peace there. We pray for an end to war and persecution and people having to be on the run. We long for the day, Jesus, when you return and these things don't have to happen anymore. Where you will wipe away every tear and bring restoration. But until that day, as the tears will continue to come, may we recognize in each of our hearts where we are trying to run from you, where we are trying to cover our pain with our success. And as we do that inner work of looking at what's in each of our hearts, may we also do that work of looking beyond ourselves to the people we love and that we know who are filled with success in all the worldly trappings, but who long for you, long for something more. Thank you for the invitation of Advent, Lord, that you moved into the neighborhood to be with us and for us. As Jesus modeled that courage in coming to be our Savior, may we take his courage, borrow from it, be inspired by it, and have conversations and reach into the lives of others that you would put in front of us for your good, for your glory, and for the good of the world that you love so much you died to save it. Now we come to the communion table, so we ask that you would set apart this bread and this juice from its ordinary purposes and use it for your glory. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Friends, our response to the sermon today is to come and receive from the Lord's bounty. Before you this morning, we have juice and we have bread. We have uh, regular crackers and we have gluten-free crackers over here on my right. Uh, it's got a little label in front of it, so we don't have to have any confusion. But this is the Lord's table. This is not my table. This is not the table of Inglewood Presbyterian Church. This is the table of Jesus Christ, and he invites anybody who has faith in him to come and receive. I want to remind you that this is an enactment of the story that Jesus wrote centuries ago. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread As he sat with his disciples at table, he broke it and he offered it to them as their servant and said, Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. A little while later, after supper, Jesus took the cup of the Passover and he poured out new wine into that cup. And he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, shed for each of you for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul would later write, As often as we eat the bread, as often as we drink from the cup, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection of Jesus until he comes again. We enact the gospel by coming to this table, by receiving that which we could not come up with for ourselves the very body and blood of Christ. So I invite you, as you are ready, to come forward. You can come down the center aisle and pick up a cup and pick up a cracker, gluten free or regular and then return to your seats. When you're ready, you're welcome to take the bread. And I invite you to hold on to the cup as we will drink the cup together in a few moments. Friends, these are the gifts of God prepared lovingly for the people of God. Let us come and receive from the Lord's bounty.